should find one, and the index a few pages in will help you find the New Testament book of Ephesians. Again, we're going to be picking up in chapter 5. We've... um, We've titled this kind of mini-series moving through chapter 5 of Ephesians, Learning How to Walk, because that's Paul's major metaphor. So last week he told us to walk in love. Uh, Next week he's going to tell us to walk in wisdom and walk in the spirit. Um, And this week we're going to focus on walking in light. And just, just to open things up before we even read, it's going to be self-evident that the imagery that Paul wants to use to help us think this morning is the imagery of light and darkness. And I I just want to point out to you that this is not Paul's choice metaphor. This isn't something where he's like, how can I talk to the church? Oh, light is a good idea. He here is drawing from a stronger and more significant tradition, which is Jesus himself. And so Jesus both said about himself, I am the light of the world, and said to his disciples, you are the light of the world. And so Paul is building upon that foundation. It is one of our primary metaphors for our identity as followers of Jesus. Okay? But like every other area we've been looking at this series, this has both a transformative, new life, new nature reality. And so he's going to say, you were darkness, you are light. You hear that? how that's identity language, how it's nature language, and how it's, it's like a, a switch being thrown. He doesn't say, you're kind of dark, but be, you're becoming more light. He says, you were darkness, you are light. But it also is something that we have to grow in our ability to express, to reflect, to live out, okay? And so, with that in mind, let's read the passage together and pray, and then we'll, um, we'll pick it apart a little bit. Um, We're going to pick up here kind of mid-thought in verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you were light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. God, light is such an appropriate metaphor for your person and for your works. And so with that, we pray in confidence that you would shed light on our understanding, that you would illuminate our minds and hearts and your word this morning so that we can better see who you are and who you've made us in Jesus Christ and who you're calling us to be in our day-to-day life. And we just, we just we stand on the, the promise at the end of this that 
that anything that is touched by the light becomes light. We, we pray that that would be the case, Lord, that this illumination wouldn't just be a practice in mind, but a transformation, that you would make us more of what we are in Christ Jesus this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Paul is in the midst of changing metaphors, in the midst of shifting gears. And so as we saw in verse uh, 6 there, uh, sorry, verse 7, he says, therefore do not be partners with them. Okay, With who? What, what is he talking about? He's just been warning us that there's a difference between the children of God's love, 1 and 2 of chapter 5, and what he calls the sons of disobedience. And, and just like the contrast between darkness and light, this is who you were and who you are, therefore it should be different. It should make a difference. It should play out in your life. Um, but he, he pivots here to this new metaphor because of that language of partnership. And in the question he's, he's kind of implying, the reason why he turns to light is, is that light and darkness can't actually mingle. They, they can coexist, right? If you've got a room and the lights are on and there's a box, behind the box is shadow. But you can't mix them together, e- even less than like oil and vinegar. There's no way to stir up the light particles and get a difference in light. It's just light exists and where light isn't, there is darkness, And so he says not just that we shouldn't uh, live like those uh, last week, but we shouldn't partner with them. And the idea here is that you can't have a co-worker who's not a Christian. The idea isn't even that you should avoid and abstain the entire world. In another place, Paul says, I don't have a rocket ship, my paraphrase. You'd have to go out of the world to do that. That's, That's not the interest. In fact, Light is the most beneficial where the darkness is the greatest, okay? Paul knows all these things, but what he's trying to point out is that when we do stuff with other people, we are partnering with them in it. Uh, if any of you can reflect on, uh, on your high school days, why is peer pressure a thing? And I don't mean why does peer pressure work. I mean, why do people have to convince one another to do stuff? It's because it validates and justifies the behavior. Okay. That's just the way we are. We naturally invite people not just into the things we want to do, but we partner with them in it. Okay. And so he's saying there is a lifestyle or a fellowship, to use a very Bible word, that, that no longer makes sense. There's, there's a place, a room for abstinence. Okay. And, and not just in the sexual tier concept, but, but abstaining, of stepping back and saying, I no longer do those things. I no longer partake of those things. I no longer partner in those things. And so after saying that, he describes it with this relationship of light and darkness. Look again at verse 7. Therefore do not become partners with them. Why? For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Okay. And again, notice that immediate Past tense transitional language. You were, but you are. Not just you were in darkness, you were darkness. Not just you're now in the light, you are light. Okay? And he sees that as um, a significant and, and almost completed transition. 
Again, he doesn't say, you were falling into darkness, but now you're coming into light. Just you were, you are. He just draws the line. Um, But at the same time, notice it requires something. And so it says, uh, next, walk as children of light. Okay. Again, one of the best ways to describe most of chapter 5 is to be what you are, which is weird language. Or, Or maybe even better, to become what you already are, okay? And so there's both this thing that happened and this thing that we need to lean into, we participate in, and therefore is happening, okay? Which is why we like the language of of learning to walk. There is a way that you are not what you were. And like I said, it's like the throwing of a switch. It's a miraculous happening. It's something uniquely that God has done. But it has implications and applications. And it is best described as working it out, or walking it out, okay? And so we're still left with the question, though, what is it that we're talking about? What, what does light look like? What does darkness do? How do the two interact? And that's his major concern here. He says don't be partners with them, which means don't pretend you're still darkness and do the things that darkness does and make no difference distinction, right, and just say, hey, I'm not light, I'm darkness, But he also is going to talk about what light is supposed to do in darkness, and we'll get to that in the second half. But I love that language, walk as children of light. And the the first thing that the idea of children makes us think of is birth, right? If you're children of light, it's like, meet my dad, Mr. Light, right? In the same way, in the last one, it referred to the sons of disobedience and the children of God. There's an origin story there, okay? And so he takes that fact— God has made you light. And he says, therefore, live out as if you were a child of light. But there's a second implication that doesn't always come off in English, but is very much in Paul's mind as a Jewish man. And if you read the Old Testament, for example, you'll find sons language everywhere. Okay, The sons of Belial, weird phrases like that. Or even here, the sons of disobedience disobedience is my dad doesn't really register the same way, does it? What's it trying to say? What it's recognizing is that there's a natural resemblance in the family. And so a son of disobedience is, is being somebody who reflects disobedience. In the same way, a son of light is somebody who carries on the family name, enters into the family business, continues the family legacy of light, okay? They look like their dad, that, that's the emphasis here. And so walk as children of light ties us to our origin story, but it also ties us to the character of God. John tells us just outright in John chapter 1, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Okay. As I said earlier in the Gospels, Jesus stands up before all of his community and says, I am the light of the world. Okay. And so it is our relationship with the God who is light and the Savior who proclaims himself as the light of the world that makes us the children of light. Okay. That is the relationship here. But again, what does light look like? He doesn't, oh gosh, forgive me. He doesn't leave us in the dark. That, that really was the language I would choose if we were talking about something else. It just happens to be a little bit punny here. Um, but he, he makes clear to us He reveals to us what he means, and so notice what he says. He says, walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. 
Now, if you took an English class in middle school, they'll tell you never to mix your metaphors. Paul didn't take your English class. He loves mixing metaphors. And so the fruit of light, right, that, that's bringing together two things. And so let's slow down. What are fruit? Fruit are things that naturally grow based on the nature of what is growing, okay? So we don't walk up to a peach tree looking for grapes. So the idea here of the fruit of light is the natural byproducts of that. And there's a reason why Paul loves fruit language. It's because it's something that happens, again, because of your nature. We don't produce fruit by picking up fruit and stapling it to trees. It just grows, okay? There's a natural, an organic, an expected outcome. That's what trees should do. All of that comes across in the language of fruit, but what's helpful for us is he says the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. What does light look like? Light looks like all that is good and right and true. Okay, so let me leverage the picture language just a little bit. Let's, let's try and, um, and imagine here what it is about goodness, rightness, and truth that is appropriate or connected to this picture of light. First, think of goodness. In fact, think, think of the idea of good fruit. Let's, let's just tie it all together. What part does the sun play in that? Huge part, right? One of the things that the sun does is it makes life possible. Blot out the sun, no harvest, right? We need the sun, and the sun produces life. And so when he says here, all that is good, what he's talking about is that light benefits. It changes it takes where there is no life and it creates life, okay? And so one of the ways that we are to walk as children of life is we're to be do-gooders. And I, I don't mean that in the derogatory sense, but I mean that there is a proactive benefit that we create in the lives of those around us because we're there. That's what it means to be light. Okay. The next thing he says is right, good, good and righteous. Okay. Now, righteous just makes us naturally think of the difference between right and wrong, which is true. Okay. To be righteous is to do right instead of doing wrong. But in the Jewish mind, for Paul, for the Old Testament, for the Bible as a whole, righteousness has a social aspect. It's, it's not like getting two plus two equals four. That's not righteous. It's right, but it's not righteous, okay? Righteousness involves how we treat other people. And in a world that is broken, righteousness always moves towards mending. In a world that is languishing, righteousness always moves towards flourishing, okay? Righteousness has to do with God's intentions for humanity, if God is desiring or identifying someone as righteous, it means that they are making the type of world that God designed the world to be. Okay. And this, this is why when Job is defending his character in the book of Job and he says, but I'm not a sinner, I'm a righteous man, here are the things that he lists. I give food to those who are hungry. I defend the cause of the poor and vulnerable. How is that righteous? because it is fixing what is broken, okay? In other words, if you want to think about light, here's another thing that light does. Light heals, okay? Do you know what bilirubin is? It's not a dude you get, need to get to know, 
Mr. Billy Rubin. Uh, it, is, it is this thing that gets into baby bodies that causes jaundice, okay? So every once in a while, a baby's born. He, uh, in his early days, looks kind of yellow, and, and the problem is he's got all of this bilirubin in his body. And the cure for it is fascinating because it's just sunlight. That's all the baby needs, okay? It doesn't take a pill. Uh, he doesn't need a surgery. He just needs a walk regularly out in the sun. And, and that's another thing the sun does. That's another thing that light does. Light is healing, in fact, light is purifying, right? Certain frequencies of light we actually use to sanitize, okay? And so there's a sense here where light does the righteous things. And so again, just like light makes good, it makes good fruit, it benefits, here light fixes instead of breaks. It builds community instead of tearing it apart. Most sin, all sin, is inherently antisocial. Selfishness is written right into the DNA of everything the Bible calls sin. It, basically, if you want to know something is sinful, are you taking advantage of other people to your own benefit? Okay. And righteousness is the direct opposite of that, is are you disadvantaging yourself for the sake of others? Okay. That's a really good way to get at what the Bible is talking about here. Okay. Do you see how those things can't really be mixed together. You can be more or less selfish, but you can't really be partially selfish. If selfishness is present, you're selfish, right? In the same way, the idea here of light is that you're moving in a completely different direction. You're, you're pushing for a completely different goal. You're accomplishing a completely different thing. Okay. And then notice the last one. The last one is true. And I think true is the easiest one to connect with light. If I say the word light and then I say a word like integrity, you go, yeah, that makes sense, right? Because we associate deception with things that are hidden, with things that are in the dark, with things that we're keeping covered, okay? And so the idea here of truth is another thing that light does. Light doesn't just reveal, it's, it's, it is um, pure in and of itself, they, there's nothing hidden in light, nothing unrevealed. And so to walk in light is to walk in truth, to, to be truth tellers. And then I'll let you in on a little Greek secret here. The word here he uses for truth, it, it, it's not speaking the truth, it's being true. Okay? And so it's, it's also a lifestyle of truth. It's, it's what we call integrity. It means that you're actually living your life in a way where you're not hiding anything. What was Jesus' greatest criticism of the religious people of his day? Hypocrisy. In fact, if you're not a Christian this morning, you should know that the language that you use to talk about religion, hypocrisy, was crafted by Jesus. Before that, it was just a title for an actor. Because in the old day, uh, you're watching, you know, in an in a amphitheater, an outdoor um, outdoor theater that's really big, full of people. You're watching a little tiny stage with no video production. You can't see their faces, and so actors, just like the tragedy and comedy masks you see sometimes on theaters today, had different masks for different expression to hyperbolize the emotion they were supposed to portray. And so he goes, Jesus goes, oh, that's a great metaphor for the way a lot of people use religion. They just put on a mask. They're not who they appear to be. Get it? Okay. Hypocrisy is the direct opposite of walking in light. 
okay? It's about honesty and integrity. It's, it's, it's about not manipulating or pulling the wool over their eyes or deceiving, right? All of those things would be the opposite of what's being talked about here. And so when we put those together, what does it mean to walk in the light? It means that your presence makes a difference for the good. It means that you are proactively working towards, you know, creating a more righteous community. And it means here that you are a a person of integrity, a truth teller with nothing to hide. Okay. It's a tall order. Basically, that's a three-dimensional picture on 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 a good person. But the point is here that in Jesus Christ, that is who God has made us in one sense, nature. You were darkness, you are light, and it is who God is making you. Okay. And, and, the, and the reason is simple. It's because humans were created in the image of God, and this is who God is. You were created to reflect your creator, And the world was created to be a world made up of image of God bearers, people who reflect it so that manifold and manifestly the goodness of God was demonstrated in human community. And you've seen glimpses of that. You've experienced glimpses of that. You've probably even been glimpses of that. But this is where things are headed. And the goal that Jesus lays out is that he is creating citizens of a kingdom of light And one day the world will be all a reflection of that kingdom. Okay, And so this is what he's trying to make the point of. This is what it means to walk in light. And I love this in verse 10. He says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Remember how I talked about how darkness and light move in different trajectories? Light moves in the trajectory of what is it that will please God? But I love that he adds the language of try to discern. And and it's for two reasons. One, because discernment is something that's necessary at dusk. Right? Have you ever been driving and you're like, what is that in front of me? Is that a trash bag or is it a carcass? Because one of those I'm going to swerve for. Right? That's discernment. You're, You're picking through something that is a little bit opaque. It's not evident and clear. Common sense doesn't require discernment. Bread and butter daily decisions don't require discernment. Difficulty requires discernment. Isn't that kind of surprising? Here, there's this big statement of light and darkness, and he says, but that doesn't mean it's not a practice of discernment. Being oriented towards the light decisions, the ones that create goodness and righteousness and truth, is not saying do the obvious. Okay? But the trajectory, the goal, one of the metrics that you should use in your own life to cultivate the character of a light bearer is the practice of discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. Okay. Now I want to come back to that, and I've got a good illustration of that, but I want to add one other part to it, because it's also a good illustration of this other part. Look at what he says in verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. He's already told us not to be partners. Take no part is just the verbal version of that, right? The noun, partner, the verb, don't partake, okay? He says, take no part in what? The unfruitful works of darkness. Now, notice that they're not differently fruitful. 
they're unfruitful. It's not darkness bears this type of fruit, nightshade maybe, and light bears this type of fruit, grapefruit. Okay? It is unfruitful works that darkness maintains. Okay? And I'm going to reach forward to demonstrate why that's the case. Why is darkness unfruitful? Well, for one, because it's not light. Darkness can't do that. Okay? You can grow mushrooms, but not fruit in the dark. Okay? Um, but more, notice what he says in verse 14. He quotes here, and we'll come back to this. He says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. Now, awake, O sleeper, do you get how that relates to darkness? Sleep is what you do at night. And pre-alarm clock, how did you know it was time to get up in the morning? How did your body know before you were conscious? It's not like you tell yourself to wake up. What wakes you up? The sun does. Okay? But sleeper is a helpful metaphor. Because what I'm not saying is that darkness isn't productive. He even calls it works, and work is productive. It's that it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. It doesn't last. And again, I think the idea of sleeper is helpful there because we've all experienced dreams that we didn't know were dreams. And actually, I don't know if this is universal, but I'll tell you what, sometimes I have a dream that I wake up and I still don't know it wasn't a dream. I have literally looked under my bed for the box of cash that I dreamed was under there, okay? And my wife has told me that she has acted out anger against me for something I did in her dreams, okay? I assume other people experience these things and there's not, you know, something demonic living under our bed. I think this is just a part of what it means to be dreaming. And that's the rub on dreams, right? You can have your literal dreams come true in your dreams and it will all happen until you wake up. And that's the point here, is that there is an appeal to the darkness, but one day you will wake from it. One day everything will be gone. One day all of those choices that you thought were in your best interest will prove to be just as ephemeral as a dream. You won't have them. They're gone. That's what makes darkness unfruitful. Sin is not just selfish. It doesn't work. Not in the long run. That's, that's why uh, Paul tells us in another place that sin is deceitful. Sin is not just something we do in the dark. It is hidden, hiding. It is, it is manipulating you. It is convincing you that the best road lies through this shortcut, but the shortcut never arrives at the destination. Okay? And so he says here, take no part in unfruitful works of darkness. What is he saying? He's saying, you've seen where this road leads because you're, you're here in the day and you know there's a huge chasm at the end of this and not the promised land. So he says, don't try and walk it anymore. And again, easier said than done. But part of growing in no longer trying to do the things that don't work is reminding yourself they don't work. And that's his point. But he also gives us a contrast task. Don't partake. Instead, you see that language, Instead, expose them. And again, that's what light does. John Stott, who was a great preacher and Bible, commentary, uh, Bible commentator, he says, if the light is lacking, we don't ask, why is there so much darkness? We ask, where is the light? Okay. If the world is dark... The right question for us isn't to go, why is it so dark? It's, it's, where is the light? Where is the people that Jesus said, you will be the light of the world, as I am the light of the world, OK? 
okay? But what happens when light fights the darkness? Nothing. It doesn't need to. You, you don't fight the darkness except just to turn the light on. That's the nature of light. It, it's just over. It's instant. If you have a dark place and you want it to be light, you just throw a switch. You don't start a campaign. Okay? And in the same way, what happens when light comes into a room? It exposes what's in the room. That's what it does. That's something that light does. Now, here's where we have to be careful, though. Because it sounds like, when we just get this far, that it is our job to shed light on all the nasty things that are happening behind closed doors. In fact, do you recognize the relationship between the word expose and the word expose? Right? What Paul is talking about here can't be accomplished by a gossip column. Now, I'm not just adding that. That's where Paul goes next. Notice what he says in verse 12. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Okay. Gossiping about darkness is just more darkness. But do you see the tension there? He says, your job as light is to expose. And then he says, but don't talk about it. But here's the thing. Light doesn't need a megaphone. It's just not part of its thing. What sound does light make? It doesn't. And I'm glad it doesn't. Can you imagine if it was just constantly saying, darkness, go away, darkness, go away. That's darkness, that's a shadow. It doesn't need to. Now, to be clear here, the word here for expose, a lot of the times in the New Testament that it's used, it's, used, uh, it's translated this way, rebuke, which is very verbal. But every time it's used that way in the rest of the New Testament, it's talking about how we talk to one another as Christians. Okay? There's an exposing reality that should happen in the church that we should recognize that we're all prone to the deceitfulness of sin and we should lovingly speak into one another's lives and bring those things into the light. Okay? But here he's talking about the outside world and he says our job as Christians isn't to be the hall monitor for the world. In another place, Paul says, I'm not telling you to judge your neighbor. You're not accountable to judge the world. Okay? But we still have an exposing role to play in the world that is. We are to expose. But notice how he explains it in verse 13. He says, not with words, but verse 13, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Walking in the light inherently exposes what's done in the darkness. Just by contrast. Just by its presence. Okay. Now, I told you I was going to pick this together, but let's, let's put all the pieces on the table and then I'll illustrate. So we're to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We're to walk in the light and that light exposes the darkness, but not with words. Watchman Nee tells the story of a man who was a new Christian in China, and he had a rice paddy. And rice paddies are a unique crop because you basically flood the field. They need a ton of water to grow. And so he had an irrigation system set up, and he pumped water for his field, and he went up there at midday, and the field was totally dry. And he couldn't figure out why, so he's checking his irrigation, and he finds that his neighbor has run a pipe from his irrigation to his own field. Okay? 
which is a lot more significant than stealing cable, okay? This guy is actually benefiting from someone else's work, and it's putting that man's work at risk. But as I said, the man was a Christian, and so he was trying to think of what to do about this, and he called his friends together for a prayer meeting, and they prayed that God would show him what to do. And here's what he started doing. Every morning he got up and he pumped enough water for two fields. And he did it every day. He didn't even talk to his neighbor. He just pumped enough water for two fields, took care of both the fields, and he did so for an entire month until he got a knock on his door, and his neighbor showed up, and in tears he said, I don't understand. I was stealing from you, and you clearly know it, and yet you've just quietly taken care of this. Why? And he said, well, let me tell you about Jesus. That is the light that exposes. That is the way that we can both benefit not just our neighbors, fruit, righteousness, and truth is not just something we do for good people, right? Jesus says we're to love our enemies. Here, a man is treating his neighbor like his enemy, stealing from his own field, taking food off his table, and he behaves in such a way that exposes the behavior, but also does him good and attracts him to the light that we're only a reflection of. Do you see that? Now, it's not always that simple. Sin is complicated, And I believe that the church has even a prophetic role, that we are to speak with a strong voice against injustice and these types of things. But the usual way that light operates is just to be the light. That's the thing that exposes. And so let me give you another illustration, one that I just think about all the time. Um, So there was a man in the Scottish Reformation a time of great revival in Scotland, named Thomas Chalmers, okay? And Thomas Chalmers himself had a radical encounter with the grace of God that changed his life, changed his preaching, and it exploded this whole ministry. And one of the things he did is he started a deacon ministry, just like the one we have here, to take care of physical needs of people within the church and in their neighborhood that had needs, okay? In fact, his ministry, there's a direct line that leads to our ministry. We, we learned some of this from him. Okay. But in writing about the significance of deacon ministry, he's doing this during the rise of communism. And he says, communism will have no appeal if the church is the church. And what he meant was, if the church is already meeting needs and taking care of the poor the way they're supposed to be, then there won't be this idea that government will do it instead. Okay. Let me give you another example also economic. Emperor Julian in the second century is writing to another man about this, uh, what does he call it? The Galilean heresy, which is what he calls Christianity. And he says, you want to know why they're succeeding, why they're growing, why they're benefiting in our empire? He says, because they take care not only of their poor, but ours instead. And you know how he did, how he reacted to that to try and put Christianity in its place? He started government programs to alleviate poverty. That's like a win in both directions. It's a testimony to the true reality of the church, and it actually changes the injustice in the government of Rome. It's incredible, okay? This is how light works. Light reveals, it exposes, it demonstrates better ways, and even the darkness adapts, okay? That's what Paul is talking about here, and if you learn this, if you practice this, you will see it play out in your families, you will see it play out in your office and in your neighborhood. 
light exposes, and anything that is exposed by light becomes visible. It inherently reveals, and then notice what he says even further, for anything that becomes visible is light. Listen, Christianity by design is contagious. Okay? It's contagious. And here he's just recognizing that, that where the light shines, the light is. And where the light is, what, it, what was darkness becomes light. This is the way that, uh, that things work. Now, I don't know about you, but when I get this far in some of the more exhortative material, some of the more this is how you should live, this is what you should do parts of the New Testament, I start to feel the weight of responsibility. For Jesus to say, I am the light of the world while he walks the earth, while he heals and preaches with authority and casts out demons, we're like, yeah. And then he leaves. And now he says, you are the light of the world. Right? And we feel that kind of plausibility gap. We feel that challenge. We feel that responsibility. But built into this is something pretty poignant. It's something pretty uh, interesting because what Paul is saying happens when we are the light is also what is happening to us because Jesus is the light. And, and it's, I know this is where he's going because follow the thread here with me in verse 13. He says, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible and anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Now, in that last sentence, is that an evangelistic appeal or is that a reminder of the church's testimony? Is he saying, therefore, go out and call a world that's asleep to wake up. Call a world that's dead to be alive again. It would work. I promise you, thousands upon thousands of preachers have made this their evangelistic text. I'm sure that's the case. But is that what he's talking about in the context? No. What he's recognizing here is this is where we were. This is who we were. In fact, we don't know the source of Paul's quotation here. It resembles some of the language of Isaiah, but it's very clearly and intentionally been adapted. So here's the best scholastic guess at where this comes from. Many commentators believe that this is part of the liturgy of baptism. Okay, so picture it with me. Here someone's being baptized, and as they come out of the water, this is the proclamation. Awake, O sleeper. Arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Do you see how that could be a powerful part of the practice of baptism? So if that's right, how is this Ephesian audience, the recipients of this letter, hearing this? As a reminder of what was spoken over the beginning of their walk with Jesus. And yes, it is a call to walk in the light. Here's how Paul puts it in the book of Romans. He says, you woke up, the night is past, take off your, again, my translation, pajamas, and put on your day clothes, right? But there's more than that because there is the promise here that Christ will shine on you, okay? So let me make it a bit more explicit. As I told you, this language of light and darkness runs through the whole New Testament because this was a primary picture that Jesus used, And so Paul talks about it, and Peter talks about it. It shows up in John. But I want to go to another passage where Paul is building on this from a different direction, and I want to show you something. So this is in 2 Corinthians, okay? And what he's talking about here is how in the Old Testament, when you read the story of Moses, 
He's the only one allowed up the mountain where God's presence is resting, and when he comes back down from it, his face is, I assume, physically glowing. Okay? Not, not like when we talk about pregnant women, but, but there's actually like light radiating off his face. And Israel is so freaked out by it, Moses, out of politeness, starts to wear a, a, a veil over his face so that he can just have normal human conversations and they're not constantly reminded by this all-threatening, all-powerful creator God who's just down the drive, you know. Uh, and so Paul takes that idea and he says, but the New Testament isn't the same. He says, we've got to take off the veil and we've got to let that glory shine right off our face. Okay, that's, that's where he's going, just in a nutshell. But listen to what he says in verse 12. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened for this day when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Don't have time to deal with that, but notice in verse 17. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. Do you see how what he's talking about here is light? Okay. Remember those stars you had in your bedroom when you were a kid? You'd leave the lights on all day, and when you turn them off at the night, they would glow? That's clearly the imagery he's drawing from here. Not the stars, but the, the idea of reflecting a light that, that we experience. And so notice again what he says in verse 18. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, sitting in the presence of the light of lights, changes us. And so he says we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The more we reflect on the face of Jesus, the more our faces reflect his face. Do you get it? In other words, going back to Paul's language in Ephesians, you are already experiencing light, being charged like those little glowing stars with light, being transformed by those light. God isn't just calling you to be a presence of goodness, righteousness, and truth. He is pouring out goodness and righteousness and truth upon you. Okay? And so there is a responsibility here, but there is also an enabling and empowering for that responsibility and a counterintuitive one. Because the worst way to be a light is to say, there's darkness over there, so I'm just going to unplug myself the lamp, and I'm just going to go be there. Right? You've got to be plugged in. Like those stars, you've got to be exposed to the sun. But you can take confidence that if you are, that if you're plugged in, the light will shine. Okay? God has no problem with you being a work in progress. It is the literal plan. He knows that he has more to do in your life. That's what he signed up for. Okay. Your goal is where you are, as you are, to cultivate goodness, righteousness, and truth. To tend the fruit of this new nature that God has given you. To experience the full light of Christ. To behold the full nature of his glory. But anything that's made visible by light is light. 
and that light will expose. And anything that light exposes becomes visible. And anything that's visible is light again. Do you see that? There's a, there's a cycle here. There's a reverberation. There's a reaction. But it is all built not on us as the light, but as receptacles and reflectors of the light. Think of the moon. The moon is the greatest light we have at night, but it has no light in and of itself. Even though you can't see the sun, you know that it's still there when it's night because the moon glows. And if that sun were to go away, we'd lose the moon too. Okay? That's what we've been called to as lights of the world. We are not the sun. We are the moon. But for us to be the moon, why does that work? Because sometimes it doesn't, right? That's what we call an eclipse. What, what, what happens in an eclipse the sun and the moon lose eye contact. The moon has no direct line to the sun and the worlds come in the way and so the moon can't reflect the sun anymore. Now, if I were a Baptist preacher, I could hammer that idea of the world coming in between. I don't care about that this morning. (laughs) What I care about is the correlation between the capital L light and the lowercase l lights. The correlation between the sun and the moon the calling for us to walk as children, but the reality of who our Father is. Okay. Those things all come together, and again, since I think it's the easiest to miss point and it seems to be the most important to Paul, the exposing work that does is just by being the light. We don't have to pick up our megaphone. We don't have to follow people around and police them. There are, again, times to prophetically stand up and proclaim right from wrong. I, in, I believe that. But light makes a difference just by being light. Okay. Let's pray. Very close, Jesus, to when you told a crowd of people, your disciples, that they were the light of the world. You said not to hide that light under a bushel, that the whole purpose of light was to put it in a dark place so that it would shine. And I pray it would be the same for us, that we would be bold to step into places of outright darkness, but not as partners, not as partakers, not as uh, keep our head down, cover up our light, just passing through, but as the radiant people of God as a moon in the middle of the night, as a reflection of the fact that day is inevitable and it will dawn. And I pray as well, Lord, that we would recognize that that is impossible apart from the reality that you are light. And so as we walk in the light, we become the light. And as we behold your face from glory to glory, we are transformed into the same image from glory to glory. And I pray for more of that for our church. I pray that we would both be in the darkness and be in the light so that in the darkness we may shine as light. God, we all know exactly where we're at. We know our context We know the place where the shadows are in our own hearts 
and that we know where they are in the places that you've planted us, in the jobs that you've given us, in the families that we've come from, in the city that we live in. And you have called us to be the light of the world. And may it never be said of our church and the church in Seattle, there was so much darkness, where was the light? Instead, Lord, instead, would you empower us? Would you transform us? Would you use us for good, for righteousness, and for truth? Pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Let's worship.